Balkans. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of, you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life life life-saving. Well, welcome everyone to the show. We're really excited to have uh some really great friends here today uh, talking about Houston and uh, innovation uh, in all things biotech. Really excited to welcome Tom Luby to the show. He's executive director of TMC Innovation. Uh, that really stands for Texas Medical Center Innovation Group. And he's got a scientific background, PhD in immunology. And he's joined uh, by his colleague, uh, Sarah Hine, who's entrepreneur in residence for the Accelerator for Cancer Therapeutics, and also a scientist by training PhD in molecular and cell biology. So welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thank Great you. To be here. Well, I'm excited to kind of uh, break down for the audience first and foremost, just to provide a little bit of context, if you can each describe a little bit about um, where you're focused within TMC Innovation. And Tom, if you can kind of kick us off, and then we can go from there. Sure, John. Thanks again for the opportunity to join the podcast this morning. You know, when we think about Texas Medical Center, um, usually we have to talk a little bit about what it is. People think Texas Medical Center is a hospital. It sounds like a hospital name, but really it's a geographical place in Houston uh, founded over 70 years ago where um, over time, many of the name brand Texas-based hospital systems and schools have set up shops. So it's a 1,500-acre campus Hospitals like MD Anderson, Texas Children's, Houston Methodist, Baylor College of Medicine are on the campus. There's some, it's a wonderful place to come and get clinical care. People come from all over the world to, to be treated at the medical center. It's a great place to be trained, wonderful medical schools, nursing, dental, pharmacy schools, great place to be a scientist. There's an incredible amount of basic research that takes place across the medical center at at all these institutions um, as well. And throughout that history, uh, the focus has always been on not-for-profit institutions being part um, of the medical center. It's actually part of the charter, the deed restrictions, if you will, um, for being able to access the land. When it was originally set up, the idea was like, well, if you're a not-for-profit focused in health education and research, you could get an acre of land for a dollar a year. So essentially free land, um, and um, so it's grown to be this, this real mega cluster of not-for-profit activity, but not for-profit activity. And, and TMC Innovation, where Sarah and I both work, was founded in 2016, um, really to begin to focus on commercialization in the medical center. And you know we can talk and go into all the different levers that we have to introduce commercialization into the medical center, both from locally and uh, from around the world. So lots more to talk about on that. Yeah, outstanding. And do you think that is, is the genesis of that um, being driven kind of at this point in time where you're starting to see a lot more active roles by research institutions to kind of think about the assets that they have, the innovators that they've brought on board that are just a lot more interested in taking their idea beyond the doorstep of the university. Is that a moment in time that's beginning to transition, would you say? Yeah, I think it's become part of the general ethos of universities to think about commercialization 
as a revenue stream, um, you know, and that's that's really accelerated probably even not just in Texas, everywhere in the last 20 years or so. We see more and more interest in being effective at commercializing intellectual property generated at basic science universities. So we see that in the medical center um, and and really use that as our opportunity to to be helpful as, as those things take place. Yeah, that's excellent. And just shifting gears, Sarah, maybe you could talk a little bit about your role and uh, more about the accelerator for cancer therapeutics. I know one thing that often comes to mind for people that are outside the ecosystem is cancer care. I mean, you think of you know Jim Allison and MD Anderson and his Nobel uh, uh, Award and, and the, the focus of, of his uh, pioneering work in immuno-oncology, for example, just one small example. Um, and, and like you said, clinical care, cancer care, often at the top of the list. Um, but I just wanted to hear a little bit more about what that accelerator is and what the focus is and um, a little bit more detail around the program. Yeah, I'd love to. So exactly, exactly what you said. Houston has really become, in Texas more broadly, has really become a nexus for cancer research and innovation. And that's in no small part to a... $6 billion fund that we have down in Texas called the Cancer Prevention Research Institute of Texas, which has driven uh, research recruitment, research, uh, new research dollars, and also product development within the state, as well as funding prevention programs across the state as well. And what's that, what that's done is create a home for innovation where we have a true area of excellence in Texas. Um, but what we have not done over the course of the first 10 years of CPRIT as efficiently as perhaps we could is conversion of that research into novel biotech companies. And so you do see licensing of those technologies out to various biotechs. New companies do get formed. But because of the friction, and this is a pretty well-established uh, phenomenon in innovation, you, you don't see that happening as efficiently. The bar is much higher. And there's certainly plenty of opportunities that aren't reaching patients because they're not finding the right partners early enough at the right stage to be commercialized. And so that's really the goal of the Accelerator for Cancer Therapeutics is we're taking, we're working with uh, primarily either researchers that are pre-company formation or very early stage startups. And we surround them with the resources that they really need to be the launch kit for a brand new startup. That looks like education. Uh, as a platform. But additionally, what we're really focused on is the connectivity of those uh, innovators to both potential partners to help them launch the company, advisors who can help them vet the technology, and ultimately to capital partners as well when they're ready. So the whole point of like the, the, the word that comes to mind is translation, kind of going from that idea at the academic setting, that world-class science, but then a brand new you know, uh, journey begins at that point, which, uh, you know, aiming toward commercialization. So I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but that, as I was hearing you talk translation, but the elements and breaking it down in terms of what the accelerator does, it's bringing those resources to um, actually create the output of translation. So that initial idea actually starting to begin the journey on the, the road toward commercialization. You know, that's exactly right. I think a lot of times when I was still in the research setting, we focused a lot of times on translation and you're always writing translational grants. And really what you're trying to say at that point is I'm trying to make something with the intent that it could reach a patient. But where a lot of those projects get stuck and we see projects that have been stuck in the academic setting and have 
continue to mature. Many, some of them have even gone into clinical trials, for example, but have not found the right partners to really move through uh, the more advanced stages in order to be commercialized. And commercialization is really the avenue by which these projects and, and therapeutic candidates can become drugs that can actually benefit patients in the long term. Yeah, because so much is required. You mentioned the word friction, you know, uh, and, and all the headwinds that go with that. I mean, it's a capital intensive process. You need so much money to go from that idea all the way to that that patient. And yeah. science isn't always translatable uh, as you go from that first phase all the way through preclinical and, and into the clinic. So a lot of uh, a lot of things can go wrong right out of the gates, but having some of that um, uh, greasing the skids, if you will, um, by providing those resources really improves likely the the chances of uh, greater greater translation of ideas getting to patients, which is the the end goal. Um, maybe just to taking it back in time and what what were the experiences that um, you had as you uh, went and ultimately decided to you know pursue your your graduate degree in science and cell and molecular biology? What were some of the guideposts along the way that maybe um, you were following uh, to get into that field. And I know I also know that you are an entrepreneur yourself. You know you've been part of uh, the a startup uh, companies. Uh, you've been a venture investor. You know over the course of of your career, and so applying those uh, capabilities to your current role, I'm just really interested in kind of learning more about you and what brought you into the field uh, to begin with to kind of get you to present day. Yeah. So it's interesting. What what really got me into science, I think. If you want to go way, way back, I grew up at a time when the human genome was still being sequenced. And we used to get pamphlets in school where we could see the progress. And, and you know, it's, it's so strange to me to think that now in 2022, we've actually just finally truly gotten the complete sequence of the human genome down to the last uh, elements that had before now escaped our capabilities. And so seeing that happen and then driving as I matured and, and sort of leaned towards picking where in science do you want to go to, you know, realizing that molecular biology was the tool set by which in a lot of these other technologies were enabled. And that was where the most innovative changes were happening in the biomedical field. From my perspective, really being interested in how we can affect the body in a way to, to make people healthier better, you know, and, and stronger ultimately at the end of the day. And so that's what really drove me towards acad academia in the early, you know, in the, in the first place and in down to Baylor College of Medicine is originally what took me to Houston to get my PhD and, and had just a wonderful experience there learning the rigors of science and how to put your, put your, you know, plans together and defend them in front of, you know, a committee of your peers. And, you know, sometimes they like your ideas and, and sometimes they don't. And you have to understand how do you take that advice and make a better plan out of what you're being told. And realizing during the course of that, that what I came to realize while doing my PhD is, is that whole element around translation, that mm -hmm. although I loved the science, it wasn't truly translational and then getting involved in, the startup community and early stage biotechs as a path to um, really learn about the process of changing what I'm saying in the lab and the research that I love doing and seeing how can we get it out of the lab and, and into a setting to where it can really benefit patients. Yeah, that's really cool. And, you know, just uh, that the 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 outstanding kind of bright shining light was the human genome project that's really interesting 
um, to see that was kind of a pivotal uh, moment for you to kind of move into that that particular pathway. Because, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'm sure you've had similar conversations with um, younger generations that are up and coming. And um, to some degree, there's a fear factor associated with, you know, science and math and technology. Um, and I often, you know, guide individuals that are interested in learning more about biotech in the industry. Is there's more to biotech than even the science. You have to have an appreciation and respect for um, the science, you know, and, and obviously if you're in a scientific role, then you have to have a scientific background. But um, I think th it's, it's always, my experience is always, there's some inspirational moment that triggers that person to kind of like lean in and go forward in that direction. Um, one thing we, we uh, you know, as we keep, keep focusing on, you know, building great companies that we are always thinking about is, you know, how do we expose that next generation of talent to the opportunities that are, are real? And oftentimes it's when they see that real moment, they picture themselves in that role. Um, that's when their moment of trans translation happens at the personal level. Well, so I mean, switching gears a little bit, but coming, coming to your story, Tom, um, what about you? Did you have any similar kind of, uh, you know, uh, light bulb moment that, that happened along your track? And I know your, your path is a little bit different um, than Sarah's in regards to you. You also went through the uh, large pharma experience uh, over uh, a big part of the arc of your career, but really interested to hear kind of as you began your journey pursuing science, what led you to that, uh, the immunology field and the, the, the doctorate in that area, and then, and then thereafter to present day? Yeah, it's almost accidental as I think about it um, from, you know, from hindsight, if you will. I went to college thinking I was going to teach biology. I thought being a teacher could be cool, summer's off, you know, and I liked biology. I thought it was a great, um, great class when I took it in high school. And so I enrolled in biology secondary education. And uh, what I found actually was that I really liked the lab work more than I did necessarily the coursework. And, uh, but the, the aha moment happened to me my second semester junior year. I actually contracted meningococcal meningitis. Mm. Right? So in the ICU for a number of days, super sick um, and uh, recovered, uh, or at least I think I have. No, no neurological damage. <laughs> There's still some think. questions about that. But, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, and what it so I was out of school for so long, I'd kind of lost the entire semester. And I was paying for college, so I was kind of working part-time, student full-time, and realized that, you know, I was going to go through my senior year now and be 15 credits short um, to graduate. So I had to do something, and there's my aha moment, like, oh, I got to figure this out. And there was a program um, that essentially taught you how to be a research lab technician. And they had 100% placement. So the second semester senior year, I went and did that program. It was at a different campus. It was a full semester. It was in residence. And I went to Boston and interviewed at BU, at Mass General, um, and got a job as a research technician. It was pretty funny because they I think they just assumed that I was going to have my degree. Hmm. I didn't tell them I wasn't going to have my degree. <laughs> and so I started the job, and I could do what they needed me to do. And BU was great because then I could go to um, – you know, work in the day and then take night classes yeah. um, and finish my degree. And that was my plan. I was there for six months and uh, the PI, a um, guy named Richard Miller, um, said, hey, I got news. Michigan has offered my wife a tenured position and they've offered me one as well. So I'm going to move the lab to University of Michigan, which sounds good. But I was like, yeah, they're going to do a background check. And find I was that just going to say, I've got degree. news. I've figured you out. You don't have a degree. <laughs> That's great. So I was like, oh. 
Um, so I needed to figure out another, another path forward. I just moved to Boston. I really didn't want to move out of Boston. I liked it. And uh, this is back in the day when companies used to advertise in the newspaper for jobs. And there was an ad for a research technician at a small biotech company. And so I applied for it. And they called me in for an interview. And what they needed to do was, was exactly what I had learned to do in Rich Miller's lab. And it was a complicated protocol. And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. I'm like on day one, I can do this stuff. And so they were really excited about me. I said, but by the way, yeah, here's my story. I didn't graduate my degree. I'm taking classes at night. And they're like, they just, they didn't even blink. They were just like, yeah, we'll pay for you to take night classes. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. And so um, I joined a biotech company. I knew nothing about it. The company did really well. I loved the job. I was taking school at night. I wound up finishing my degree. The company went public. I had these things called stock options that all were worth money. I was like, oh, I got married, put a down payment on a house. I was like, this is... This is really nice. Um, But after being in the company for almost five years, I recognized that as a technician with a bachelor's degree, you're kind of capped in how far you could progress. And I was like, I want to go back to school and and get my uh, PhD and continue my career in industry. So I was very focused on that. So, um, you know, like I was making good money. It was not an easy decision. Family was supportive. Um, we didn't have kids at the time, so mm-hmm. that helped. And um, I applied and got into Tufts. And um, the company I was working for was an immunology-based company, so I, I knew see. immunology. So okay. I applied to the immunology program, mm-hmm. um, got in, was crazy focused. You know, I was like, I'm not doing one of these six-year PhDs. So I got my degree in just over four years. I wanted wow. to do it in under four years, but it took me uh, four years and That's two amazing. months. That's amazing, yeah. And uh, then, like, you have to do a postdoc. Okay. So I went to Harvard School of Public Health and started a postdoc and I was in the postdoc for like like two weeks. And I'm like, yeah, this is not for me. I'm not doing this. I'm yeah. going back in the industry. Um, and so networked because I had now I had industry experience and a and a PhD and got into uh, my second biotech. And what happened in the biotech, the, the world of biotech and startups is is, you know, if you're smart and you're motivated you'll get an opportunity to do other stuff than mm-hmm. what you're originally hired for. Right? So I was running the animal pharmacology group, but then we were doing business development stuff. And so they'd bring me in to do kind of the sell side, technical BD presentations. I was like, this is kind of cool. I like this. And I got more and more responsibility. And so over the course of the next nine years, that company got bought, required, and we were in a bigger company. Then it got acquired again. We were in a bigger company. And my role shifted from bench scientist more to BD person, search and evaluation kind of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really, I really liked it. Um, And so then eventually, um, after we got acquired the second time, I was like, okay, this was a good run. Let's go find something else to do. I joined another company, Shire, actually, um, before it got acquired by Takeda, doing just that. Early stage BD, thinking about using equity dollars as a way for large companies to partner with, with smaller companies. Um, and, uh, and the sort of credentials I built there then got me a job at J&J. So I was in J&J uh, for five years um, doing that from the first part. And then the second part, they said, hey, would you go to Houston and um, you know run the JLab site that we have down there? Now, I had been in Boston now for 25 years. I'd never been to Houston. Yeah. I was like, mm, I don't know. Let me go check it out. So I flew down um, and uh, drove into the medical center. And I was just like, I had no idea this existed. I had heard of MD Anderson and some of the hospitals, 
but I had no idea what the medical center was. And so that, that was, you know, for me, um, a moment where I'm like, this is really interesting and, and growing. So the J labs years, I was two years at the site headed J labs and then, um, Texas medical center recruited me over to, to work on the commercialization efforts there. And so it's, when I look back, you know, if you had said to me in, as I say, fly back 2016, six years ago, hey, in six years, you'll be running the innovation group at Texas Medical Center in Houston, Texas, I probably would have laughed. I would have yeah. been like, what? Yeah. That's crazy. Who yeah. would have thought that? But yeah. but here I am and it's and it's really, really fun. No, that's really cool. That's a great story too. And and so, I mean, and just for the audience, the J Labs is a, it's a kind of a wet lab incubator that Johnson & Johnson has set up in many cities really uh, with an eye toward innovation. So, right. you know, it, when you're building a uh, a drug, you know, or or even a device, um, you know, the the journey's long. It's expensive, and uh, large corporate partners, uh, really, you know, I would say that the the stalwart, you know, uh, most uh, uh, most kind of lauded uh, area and company that has kind of led the way in innovation in biopharma has been J and J, and their model has been to open up these. Uh, laboratories uh, near that early stage yep. science so that they have an opportunity to window to that early innovation. And that's helped them with their strategy that, you know, maybe the, you know, it's not often known by the broader public that a lot of the large pharmaceutical and device company revenues come from early stage companies. Maybe they start at the university level, they go into the startup, the startup grows, maybe goes public, gets acquired. And that top line, the revenues really are driven by that early stage innovation. So back to J-Labs, J-Labs is set up there in key kind of locations. Texas Medical Center, yep. you know, uh, fortunately for you, uh, was the beginning stage of your next next chapter. And I think, you know, that's really what, what I'm excited to talk about next, which is from, from where you started to where you're, where we are now, what have you seen kind of transform? And then as you kind of address that question, and, and I, I, I'm asking this question more from the standpoint of the, the community, like everything you describe, I mean, the listeners can't see your facial expression and your, your, your energy and your passion as you talked about your being part of the biotech company and kind of that, that whole, there, there's a lot of um, excitement that goes with that. I mean, and again, there's a lot of ups and downs in, in the journey, but you know that thrill of the of 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 building something um you know we try to figure out how do you create that same feeling in a more scalable uh repeatable fashion yep. in places outside boston i mean that happens in boston on a regular basis but it took many years for it to become what it is right but um maybe you could talk about the features of where houston was when you started where Houston is now, where you think it's going, and maybe in that futuristic description, what do you think are the key elements that maybe enable it to, to be a, uh, a high-functioning uh, growth ecosystem for startups? Yeah, thanks Thanks for that. It's interesting you, you talked about Boston because, you know, I spent 25 years, I, you know, kind of career-wise grew up in Boston. I'm actually a native New Yorker, and so I'm not very, <laughs> it's not, you're not very popular from your sports team's perspective when you're in Boston, but uh, from a science and thinking about biotech, it's a, just a wonderful community. But, you know, my first job, uh, this was at Immulogic. This is the the first biotech job I'd, I'd, I'd gotten was in Kendall Square. It's actually a few blocks removed from the Kendall Square T-stop and where MIT is. And it was a tough neighborhood. Like you did not want to walk around in that neighborhood at night. 
Um, you know, fast forward to today, 25, whatever years later, you know, it's some of the most expensive real estate in the world um, and, a, and an absolutely outstanding life sciences cluster. It didn't happen overnight, um, though. At the core, um, it, I think it's about the culture of commercialization that existed really at MIT. And they're thinking about, you know, taking the technology and the intellectual property and the insights that they were foundationally uncovering and translating that into a commercialization. So Draper Labs was right there um, as well. And so there's that kind of culture that grew up. And then and then when, you know, life sciences folks started thinking about that and building a biotech, in it, it just fit really mm-hmm. well. And it's grown like that. And that's the important ingredient in my mind that we're starting to see develop in Houston as well. Just a culture of commercialization. People really thinking about, I mean, Houston's got long history of entrepreneurship sure. in the energy and in and in space, yep. right? Those are really um, important mm-hmm. uh, industries in Houston, and they grew up there. And I think life sciences, biotech, med tech um, has the same opportunity in Houston. You have to think about in the same timelines as Boston. This isn't going to happen overnight. But as more and more people focus on, hey, commercialization is really important not you know not so much like let's publish the next paper but let's think about commercialization as well um, it creates the opportunity for talent to be moved around and, and that's the real piece that we focus on so we love to encourage people to think about commercialization we love to think about startup as the right route for commercialization for most of this stuff and then it's the crazy hunt for talent you know you can go in Boston and it's actually it's a talent war in many cases yeah. you know people recruiting, from other companies, and it's hard to keep your people. In Houston, we're really focused on growing talent there and being collaborative um, in the way that we we do it. And that's why Sarah has the position as an EIR, right? Because okay. you know when we talk to these universities about, hey, we want you to spin stuff out, their first question is like, well, who's going to be the person on the other side, right. right? Who's the industry experienced person that we could work with to do this? And we're like, yeah, that's Sarah, yeah. and you know, and that that's really helpful and. and greasing the the skids on those conversations. I'd love to hear more, you know, go deeper on that, Sarah, too. Talk a little bit about the role of the of the EIR and how that is kind of uh, enabling those next steps. I mean, you talked a little bit about it when you described the accelerator, but maybe, you know, any any thoughts around um, your role in uh, as as an EIR that can help those entrepreneur those innovators take take the next steps as they move their idea forward. And maybe a second part of the question would be, um, what are the barriers that you see as Houston unfolds? You know, as as you start to open up the channels to to kind of uh, accelerate uh, talent development and retention, but then you know um, you know the, on on the one hand it's as an EIR, you're enabling the next steps for that technology to move forward down the path. But on the other, you need to identify talent in the market likely to keep building that team so that um, you know, you're able to build uh, and move forward with a multifunctional team. Can you, can you talk about that dichotomy? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, so you asked me simply what is the role of the EIR? And one of the simplest ways that I at least like to engage with the institutions and the faculty both is saying, hey, look, I'm helping you find the right people. And and although sometimes, you know, the people element in the talent element is a real challenge in Houston. And I think 
you know, no matter what, if you're primarily in an academic setting and you've never interacted with this world before, that's going to be a challenge period. And it's one of the key things that we can, as TMC Innovation can bring to the table is we are a nexus of, uh, of, of people, of community. And although Houston, historically, we don't have the major pharma anchors, we don't have that, you know, as much of the credential talent from, you know, Pfizer and, and you know, Merck or, or BMS, what we do have is a very, very strong community in spades. And that feeds from the fact that the, the medical center itself has all of these world-class institutions right on top of each other. And so people, even, even when they're still in the academic setting, learn to work together very efficiently. And that's part of what drives the excellence of the research. And I say all that because I've actually sort of, you know, homegrown in Houston as far as a professional career. Came down to Houston originally for my graduate degree. Didn't really expect to stay and as I was, you know, looking to finish up that degree, I, I looked around and said, hey, I'm really interested in doing the startup degree, startup uh, community that is growing here. And that came from that sense of community and the people that I was meeting who were like-minded individuals who were self-creating opportunities. And so that led me to my first startup, which was called Courier Therapeutics. And so when I worked and, and I, and through that process over the course of, say, you know, the 12 years that I've been sort of in this space in Houston, I've had an opportunity to meet everybody. And one of the great things about such a tight-knit community is you can find a lot of people and they're very, very generous with their time. And so although we're always looking for more people and we're always looking to, to cultivate additional opportunities for the younger talent, the next generation, people are willing to roll up their sleeves and dig in with you. Uh, above and beyond that, I think, Many people would otherwise, because there's not always a direct one-to-one -one correlation of if I put in this many hours, I'm going to get X dollars out of the end. It's really that that it's really that feed-forward flywheel cycle of trying to say, hey, if we all do this together, we can keep these here. And so when you the other question that you asked me, I think was, what do I see as the challenges and what do I see as the opportunities? And, and it's growing those opportunities here so that way we continue to have that virtuous cycle, mm -hmm. continue to see people who now have done this, who can say, hey, I, you know, I did this before and I know, you know, so-and-so down the road mm -hmm. and we can go get coffee and we can talk about the next big project. Yeah. And this one's maybe a little crazier than last one, but hear me out. It's mm. going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just get a drink and we'll talk about it. And we'll see if it, if it has any legs. And you can have that kind of low risk interaction where maybe you start with idea A and maybe idea A is maybe not as good as you thought it was. But from that, you're like, oh, yeah, well, this other person down the road, they're, they're working on, you know, something that's kind of related. Maybe you should just go talk to them and see what happens. That happens all the time. And so my role, you know, people say, what do, what do you do <laughs> as an, what is it that you do here? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you're working on. <laughs> and, and my role is to help make sure that those conversations are happening. And when I talk about what does the accelerator do, the easy things to point to are the curriculum and the events and the programming and, hey, you know, we'll help you, you know, find capital both by connecting you to venture and we're, we're writing grants and we're, we're pulling up. Those are the, those are the hard things. But none of that works unless you have the right people involved. Yeah. And so the main thing that we're doing is trying to facilitate those conversations and get the right people around the table to make sure that whatever they're presenting, we've vetted it, we've, we've pressured, you know, we've pressure tested it, and then 
in a collaborative way, figured out, hey, if there is a problem, let's figure out what the potential solution is. And then we go do it if it's possible. And if not, we put the plan together to solve that. And that's where, you know, that's where venture comes in, right? Is to help reach achievable milestones that have a clear outcome. No, that's great. And and I think, you know, when at Portal, we talk a lot about this, uh, uh, the, the nature of kind of building the right uh, ecosystem. And we talk about the word hardware and software. And on the hardware side, it's the building we're in. It's the lab. It's the equipment. Sure. And you have to have the right tools and the right environment to be able to do your work. But that's an incomplete part of the story. The software is that community. Everything I heard you talk about, the connections, uh, the, 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 uh, the mentality, the, the commercial mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset, the risk-taking um, goals that individuals that now populate the landscape start to begin to have. And I mean, I certainly see that in Chicago. Chicago has transitioned from what I'll call a longer term, you know, corporate town. I mean, we've, we've been blessed with a broad-based diverse economy over many years, but it didn't start that way. I mean, we started, you know, as a, as a, a city of entrepreneurs, you know, out of the great Chicago fire. I mean, great innovation cities arise from crisis. I mean, Boston, the Bay Area, we know this, right? And I think that um, over time, Chicago was able to, you know, be this broad-based economy that supported large companies. But that's a different kind of mindset. You 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 build your career differently. I mean, my dad worked for Inland Steel for 38 years, and you know, moved up through the organization. And uh, and so, you know, the Great Recession changed all of that. So it's kind of a new Chicago fire in a sense. And I know that affected a lot of different economies around the country, but. Um, but I mean, that's that software part. It's a mind switch. If you don't have people with that mindset, if if you know, if we were continuing to be able to enjoy, you know, long running, you know, careers, you know, relative relatively less uh, risk involved, um, you know, over long periods of time, then you tend to, you know, uh, places tend to and people tend to gravitate back to, to those opportunities. But when those opportunities aren't there. Um, your mindset changes pretty quickly. And I mean, we've definitely seen that in Chicago and and, and I, I sense that you're seeing that in, in Houston, probably for different reasons and maybe different parts of your economy and how it's changing. But the one of the things that um, I think would be interesting to learn more about is in the next stages for TMC innovation, can you talk a little bit about the hardware? So you've, I think, well characterized the software, the the, the change in mentality, the the entrance of uh, new innovative faculty brought in by investments by your partner institutions that are saying, hey, we want you here. CPRIT is helping attract those individuals. So a lot of the feedstock for the, the startup um, uh, sources is beginning to take root. And you're even seeing... Uh, within the different institutions, uh, you know, an increased sophistication around how do we take these assets, now that we've recruited these people in, how do we help them create impact by, you know, moving their idea into a company that they want to be a part of and impact for the faculty members beyond just publishing, like you said, in science and and nature. Um, But Maybe talk, if you can, uh, Tom, about what, what are some of the visions for hardware that's going to be required to house some of the growth that you expect now with this changing ecosystem? Yeah, we, we're very focused on the hardware side of it right now because, you know, we made this kind of switch from it being a center focused on not-for-profit healthcare education research to thinking about commercialization and change the 
the deed restrictions, the charter, to create two pieces of property within the medical center that allow for for-profit activity. So for the first time, for-profits could have a place to call home in the medical center. The, the place where Sarah and I work out of right now actually is a former Nabisco bakery. So they made Oreo cookies and Ritz crackers. And it's really unique. Old factories tend to be this way. You know, it's 650,000 square feet in total, but it's almost all one floor. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're in the middle of that building, the hallway is a quarter of a mile long. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's And yeah. so it's got great. And just to work at a cookie factory. I mean, <laughs> I know. it's hard to top that. We, yeah, we, still we make the logos all kinds of corny puns about, you know. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Half-baked ideas and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, so the... Um, the bones of the building are very industrial. And I think there's something about being in like a factory that gets you in a mindset of, you know, creation, building, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And so we've created a number of different spots for entrepreneurs to be successful, very think thoughtful about the hardware. We, we talked about J-Labs already. So that's co-working, shared wet lab space, fully equipped, turnkey, come in there on day one and start, you know, doing your doing your science um, we have um, a number of different sort of co-working options, office space options, so people can come and you know get a hot desk or get a full suite, office suite if they need that. And that's that's important as well. And then we have our corporate partners embedded in there. We have ABB is in that building with their um, essentially robotic development lab is in there. They're focused on on health healthcare applications, not not robots in the surgery suite, but automation in the hospital processes and systems. Um, J&J actually has another site in there, uh, Center for Device Innovation, which is a, um, a really elaborate, incredible machine shop for med device prototyping because you need it, right? If you're going to be a med device entrepreneur, somebody's got to provide you with, you know, either additive manufacturing or subtractive, or, you know, to, to create prototypes and move forward. So that that's really an important piece. And we will continue to build out some uh, wet lab space. We're in the process of doing that to, to meet demand uh, in that building. The other piece of property is, is under development right now. Um, it's a campus that's currently called TMC3. And that's a 37-acre campus right in the middle of South, South Campus of, of the Medical Center, very focused on translational work. So um, we've we have a building there, it's called the Collaborative Building, um, that's been co-funded. So it's jointly owned by MD Anderson, UT Health, Texas A&M, and us. It's the first time in the history of the medical center that different institutions have owned a building. What's really great and what we're really excited about but that building is on the second floor, those three institutions, MD Anderson, UT Health, and Texas A&M, will share lab space. Mm. So there'll be researchers from those three institutions working next to each other in the same space. That's that's for the first time. They're yeah. usually... That's on our If you go to the medical yeah. center, the buildings are like right next to each other, but they're separate so buildings. Everything is siloed, yep. Yeah, and this is not. So, th- so there's an opportunity for true collaborative work, and everybody's very focused on thinking about commercialization being the theme in that building. And then, so on that's on the second floor. Um, and then on the floor above, we're going to open up some more shared co-working wet labs where there's an opportunity for the startup companies that get formed from the second floor to move up to the third floor as discrete companies now, but still be close to the scientists who helped find, find that. That's a really interesting model. Obviously, we'll, other people can come into that space from from other places as well, but that that's great. And then on the fourth floor, We'll be focusing our um, venture efforts, right? So TMC, we have a $50 million venture fund. 
We do early stage investing, seed and Series A. Um, and so we'll locate venture fund folks up there, and then we'll look to attract some other funds to put some some people there as well. So a building completely focused on commercialization in the heart of the medical center on this new campus. Um, we're we're really excited about that. So that's like that's real hardware. There's a lot of yeah. investment going into it. Um, and hopefully we'll fill it with world-class software. There's no doubt about it. No, I, I think um, just I've had the uh, pleasure and honor of uh, walking through and seeing the vision and watching some of those buildings come out of the ground. So it, it truly is transfer- transformational. No, no, no. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. And maybe one step further talking about that that hardware and software, um, you know, metaphor, one of the things I think is really interesting is you described kind of the um, change in charter and the ability for profit making. It allows you to do uh, a lot of things, uh, you know, kind of at the ground level. You're putting in a park. People can hang out. There's receptor points, uh, you know, whereas in the clinical care setting, a lot of it's buildings and you're treating patients. But this campus feel, um, some of the retail that you would envision going in there, um, creates, you know, back to your Kendall Square example, yep. just points where people can have coffee, grab a beer, um, wh- whatever, they do some karaoke, yeah, perhaps. It's incredibly, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Not, the- <laughs> not me, but other people. It's incredibly important. So, you know, we, we I talked about the collaborative building. That's kind of going to be kind of the clubhouse. But there are a number of other buildings that will be going up. There's another one currently being uh, built by Beacon Capital, our partners out of Boston, um, that's focused on, you know, uh, industry, wet lab space. But these buildings are built around a set of parks that are shaped in the a DNA helix. The first floor of each building is open to retail, um, which we'll be able to, to manage and control. The parks will be activated. Um, there's a residential tower that's going up on that campus as well and a hotel and conference center. So it'll really be activated space where, where people can, they can live there, they can work there. And, and also it will become a destination for yeah. the city mm-hmm. um, for people to come that, you know, you wouldn't think that like, well, let's go to the medical center to spend the afternoon in a park, but we're creating the opportunity for, for just that. Um, yeah. And we're excited about the, that potential as well. It should be, should be, have a big impact on the success of that campus. Well, and I would think, you know, we've touched uh, a little bit on another key ingredient for continued sustainability being capital, you know, kind of from seed to series A and then into later stage investing, A, B, C, et cetera, prior to a company ultimately going public or getting acquired, you know, by a larger organization. Um, you know, to what extent do you see, and and maybe Sarah, you can address uh, some of this. Is you know, as you're building these companies, as you're as you're looking to translate, um, you know, you need access to capital. Um, what's your maybe characterization of available capital today to some of these companies? But given the big investments in the people, the ecosystem, the hardware, the software where things are going, I would imagine not only is it a destination for other people in Houston, but it's going to be a destination for capital partners that want to be near and invest in the companies that are coming out of that space. But could you talk a little bit about what's happening there now and where you think it's going on the capital side? 
So it's interesting that in Houston, we have programs like CPRT, which does provide capital sort of investments in a non-dilutive way for when you're thinking about it as a startup. But And we do have a few key firms that historically have invested as well as a, as a relatively healthy angel network and, and various high net worth individuals who, both for mission and personal reasons, as well as you know investment reasons, have found opportunities throughout the community. One of the barriers historically for Houston and capital has been that although there's many technologies, there's not a lot of companies to invest in or investable companies with teams surrounding that technology. And so often what's happened is the technology gets picked up and it gets taken to Boston or it gets taken to California um, and the company gets built there. And, and what that doesn't do is it doesn't, as I said, leave that sort of cycle going to make it easier on the next opportunity. So that's part of what we are able to do at Innovation is help provide a nexus. And, and through the accelerator, we're trying to help you know more fundable companies come together with better teams and more robust plans for that capital. So now if an investor comes to us, we can say, hey, we've worked with these people. We've seen them come together. We've seen their ability to, to pick up a baton and really run with it and engage with what they're being told and, and, and act, on, um, act on a plan. And as a result of that, between, I would say, you know, we're on our second cohort this year. Between last year and this year, the number of inbound um, requests we've seen, as you said, capital coming in, looking for additional investment opportunities, has increased dramatically um, because people are sort of understanding the value of of the work that we're doing and and also just frankly, you know, getting, you know, catch press releases from, you know, maybe an earlier cohort catching their attention. And so, you know, I'm excited to see what's happening. Of course, I'll I'll always say, you know, you can always use more capital in in an ecosystem whenever you're trying to drive, you know, startup growth. Mm -hmm. It continues, particularly in the early stages, the earliest stages to be a limiting uh, factor. The more mature companies that we have in the ecosystem, once they have the full team, once they really are, are, let's say, on series A, B, Uh, tend to be able to go get outside capital much sure. more easily. Yeah, and they can go to the capital and bring it in. Um, but for those earlier stages, you know, we still need more. But you know, I'm I'm really really optimistic on the ecosystem and, and based on what I've seen even in the last few years is from the engagement from asset partners. Yeah, we look at it very very carefully. I mean, there's this old chicken and egg argument that we talk about all the time. It's like, well. You know, if you have the talent, you can get the capital. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if you have the capital, you yeah. can attract right. the talent, right. right? And you know, which is it? It's it's honestly, it's probably a little bit of both. But but we we've come out of like let's let's go be active about finding capital um, and really be focused on it. And so we created our own fifty million dollar balance sheet fund, yep. which we invest in companies that we work with that are that are part of our community. Um, and you know, and then what's great about being an investor in this space is the connections you can make with other investors. Mm-hmm. You know, we take board seats, so I sit on the board of two companies, and you meet other board members, other investors. You can start to talk about what's what's interesting and and raise the level of consciousness about what you're working on, or what we're working on, and how things are going. So, so that piece has been really strategically important to us as we move forward, and and using that as a lever to pull in other capitals to create syndicates is, um, you know, will continue to be an important part of our strategy. Very interesting. Yeah. And it's not unlike what we're seeing here in Chicago and I'm wondering uh, your uh, remarks or thoughts on, on this point. And that is, 
um, through COVID, you know, there was uh, a greater attention on biotech by a broader set of investors, including family offices here in Chicago, who over the course of that time frame were also experiencing strong uh, returns and liquidity yes. events that were providing opportunities to put capital to work in, in different areas and noticed that the risk appetite changed and there was a desire to find opportunities to invest in uh, life-saving treatments even beyond COVID. And we've certainly benefited from that. So from that early stage perspective, you know, Portal has acted as a kind of a, a smart money lead that is able to attract those family offices that kind of trust our leadership and diligence capabilities to kind of not only invest in the beginning um, and syndicate with them, who also have, frankly, a little bit of a stickiness pride. They, they have a Chicago pride to them. So they believe in not only the great science, but if great science happens and good companies emerge and they grow in the city, there's an economic development yep. uh, return, if you will. Sure. And so um, I think you need a little bit of that to happen um, to create that stickiness so that as they start, they stay over time. Um, as you said, as companies grow and mature, they can, you know, the money becomes a little more portable. They can go to the money and they can bring it home because they've got the they've got the team and the infrastructure. And to what extent are you noticing that amongst uh, kind of family offices? You know, you talked about the the uh, you know the industry uh, in, in space and and in oil and gas. Is that are you seeing any of that money? You know, look for new opportunities in in this emerging industry. Yeah, so you know, Houston has been blessed with a long history similar to Chicago of you know great corporate success. And that's left um, a lot of people with significant wealth um, in the Houston area with the same kind of Houston pride, very, very thoughtful about how um, they want to sort of give back to the city and still, you know, do well financially yeah. as they move forward. Um, we, we get asked that question a lot. Can you pivot oil and gas money um, into, into healthcare? And you can a little bit, um, especially on the med device side, I think that there's an, you know, there's an engineering component to yeah. it. There's a shorter time frame, and Makes people sense. are, people are more, it's, it's, it's much more difficult um, on the biotech side, but the fund and our diligence and then in the success we've had to fund, we've found the same thing that we have groups that will go into deals with us that we lead. Um, and so that's been, that's been very helpful. Lots of, you know, lots of SPV stuff out there. So, you know, people coming together, pulling together a special purpose vehicle to invest alongside um, what we do. That's been, that's been successful as well. So you have a number of um, people who aren't mega wealthy but have some excess wealth pulling together an investment um, and, and, you know, coming alongside with that. So, you know, it's not, it's not blue chip. Um, by any means, although there's a few blue chip funds there, we're, we always, as Sarah said, always looking for for more capital. But good projects yeah. with a talented team, mm -hmm. we can get them funded. Yeah. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, as we start to wind down the conversation, one of the uh, questions that I'd, I'd like to ask is really around as we look to the future and we think about building great companies, scale is important, and that talent pipeline is critical, especially as you think about you know. Science moving very rapidly now in new modalities like uh, cell therapy and gene therapy, needing biomanufacturing hardware, but also the the talent and the people that can um, make make the stuff, you know, and, and and use the 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 bioreactors and all that goes with that to to make these life saving treatments that you know we'll begin to see more and more of with the with the way the science is is translating. We think about you know, CAR-T and yep. products like Kim Raya and curing leukemia, you know, and, and, 
And back to the impact of like one person, you know, I mean, you, you look at Carl June at Penn and, yep. you know, it spawns an industry in many respects. And so I think um, the, the nature of this question is more around how do we how do we open up uh, more lanes of talent and uh, particularly more diverse talent? Um, you know, I really, uh, w- when I think about your journey as you, you know, started your career in science, you know, um, a- as a woman, you know, moving down the path, I, I know it, it, it's a more difficult path than a white male for sure. But can you talk a little bit about how do we open up the doors to access more leadership uh uh, of, of more of a more diverse kind, you know, and and, and I mean that in you know, and from a gender perspective, from a, a race perspective, and 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 uh, even from a diversity of function, you know, knowing finance, knowing uh, science, and sure. all that that all goes into the the diversity area. But I mean, just truth be told, biotech is not, is a it's a it historically has been a more insular community. It, it is especially at the leadership level. So, any points or thoughts around? how you think we can open up access um, to a more diverse workforce as, as we build the industry? Yeah. You know, I think one of the interesting things that at least I see in Houston, and this is probably largely influenced by my seat from, from having grown up in it, is the younger, more diverse people are out there. They're hungry and they will work really, really hard to get things done given an opportunity. And what's interesting is when you do have that competition for talent, particularly in specialized, really hyper-specialized and evolving areas like cell therapy, all of a sudden you've, you actually, in some ways, it, it helps drive that diversity to some, to, to a certain extent, because you can't wait for the person with 20 years from, you know, Pfizer and Novartis, because they don't, they don't know how to run the bioreactors, yeah, right? right, right? Yeah. You're hiring people and you're training them a lot of times because that's how you get the yeah. right people in. Yeah. And so you have an opportunity to, to pull people who have that appetite, have that hunger, and, and that same pool of people will help you be successful because they're helping you look around the corners and, and, and really drive success. And they're just as uh, capable and experienced as, like you said, that you know 20-year veteran because it's brand new stuff. Yeah, More, so. more, more capable, more experienced a lot yes. of times because they may sure. not have 20 years at, at, at Pfizer and Novartis, but but dang it, they have uh, you know three, four years at the Cell and Gene Therapy Center or they're working you know at, at the new uh, cell therapy manufacturing facility, you know, down in Houston and, and they're, you know, working side by side, building out new facilities and, and, and GMP quality and taking them to an industrial That's scale. That's a great observation. It's yeah. timely to talk about biomanufacturing from our perspective as well. We're, we're very interested in thinking about the potential for that as a, as a part of Houston's story. Um, you know, it's a great hub for logistics for a number of reasons, two airports, a port, a deep water port, et cetera. Um, and, you know, COVID, because of the demand for specialized manufacturing that even the vaccines created and what you said, all the emerging immuno-oncology paradigm uh, that's that's really, you know, patient-specific and cell-based. And then this concept of reshoring supply chains, especially right. in the, like, there's a really big demand yep. for um, new biomanufacturing capacity and that's, you know, that's, there's a little bit of time and money there. Like you can build these plants, but then you get, you're right. You need people to run them. And mm-hmm. this is not, you know, run of the mill kind of stuff. So workforce development is a key focus um, in Houston generally. And with, a, with a, a focus on biomanufacturing as part of it, we're directly involved in some of these conversations 
as well. And, and it has to be what Sarah says. You need to train the people. You need to find the people. We're fortunate that in, in Houston, um, there's an incredible amount of schools and it's a it, currently the most diverse city in the United States. Hmm. So diversity of talent and, you know, the opportunity to partner with um, two and four-year universities and create a training environment um, is one that uh, we see as a, a real um, next step for Houston uh, and actively pursuing it. We're, we're excited about that that potential as well. Not that we need to do more stuff, but it's um, it's really, I think, a, an important moment, and Houston can play a, a key role in that. I, I couldn't agree more. And again, the rate limiting step to the biocentury is going to be that, that talent it's flow, talent, I think. For sure. Yeah, the yeah. science is kind of outpacing the talent flow right now. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining the conversation today. I know it's been inspiring for our audience. Um, it's a real pleasure uh, and honor to be uh, considered your friends and partners and working together. And we look forward to continuing to collaborate with you um, here at Portal. So thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, John, it's our, uh, it's our honor and our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank tonight. you so much. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.